sometimes things in life don't go the way we want them to. Sometimes when that happens, we like to blame God. Lord, why didn't I get that promotion at work? Lord, why won't these depressive thoughts and feelings go away? I've prayed earnestly and they continue to be a thorn in my flesh. Lord, why do you allow people to mistreat me? To treat me poorly and with contempt? And we blame the Lord that things in our life are not going the way we would like them to go. And you know what? Sometimes it is God's fault. It is God's fault because His plan is different than our plan, and when our lives are not turning out according to our plan, but they're turning out according to His plan, He's the reason why they're not turning out the way we want them to. Sometimes it's His fault because His timing is different than our timing. And we want him to go faster and he says, I'd like to, but I can't get done what I want to do if I go too fast. Sometimes he simply has asked us to suffer for the sake of the kingdom or for some bigger plan that he has. And so we're right. Our lives are not turning out the way we want them to turn out because of God. But sometimes it's our fault. Sometimes it's a result of our disobedience. And by our disobedience, I mean my disobedience, your disobedience, or the disobedience of those around us or connected to us. And we fall down on our face and we blame God and we say, Lord, the fear, the anxiety, the difficulty, the struggle in my life, Lord, why are you doing this to me? And he says, get up. Why are you crying out to me? This is a result of your disobedience. Sometimes our lives don't go the way that we want because of God. Sometimes our lives don't go the way that we want because of us. This morning we're going to talk about the role that our disobedience plays in the difficulties that we experience in life. So please take a Bible and turn to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, it's page 173 in the Bibles the church provides. Joshua chapter 7. Together as a church, we're in a study of the book of Joshua. The story of the book of Joshua is that God has made some incredible promises to the children of Israel. Those promises include a specific piece of land that he has sworn to give them. And although they were disobedient in a previous generation, they're now ready to listen and obey. And God has led them under the leadership of Joshua across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. And they have begun to live out in obedience the conquest of the land. They've gone through a number of ceremonial things, but the first major event of the conquest was the city of Jericho. We looked at that for the last couple of weeks. The city of Jericho, God said, look, this first battle is going to be unique. It's not going to be fought the way normal battles are fought. What I want you to do is I want you to watch as I fight for you. Because sometimes God works with us in our working, 
and sometimes God says, the walls are too big, you sit there, I'm going to do the work for you. The city of Jericho represents those things in our life where God just simply says, all you're going to have to do is just obey. I'm going to do all the work. And God does the work, and the walls of Jericho fall down. And this amazing thing happens, and God says, hey, now wait. This city is unique, and therefore, because it's unique, everything in Jericho belongs to me. I did the work. Everything is mine. You are not allowed, children of Israel, to take any plunder from Jericho. You are to burn it to the ground. You are to kill every living thing associated with the city of Jericho. Anything that doesn't burn, that's precious, it's devoted to my treasury. Well, having been so successful at the city of Jericho, it's time now to move on to the next city that is to be conquered. And the next city is Ai. Ai is actually just a little outpost connected to the city of Bethel. And Joshua and the children of Israel, on the heels of such an amazing, miraculous working of God, are ready to keep obeying, and they're ready to go on to Ai. We pick up the story in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up. But they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? Okay, stop there for a moment. The battle of Ai is proceeding more like normal battles go. Meaning Joshua sends spies, and this time the spies actually do some spying. And the spies actually come back with some military information. And they say to Joshua, hey, yep, that's the next city we're supposed to go to. But look, this is going to be no problem. I mean, after all, God's with us. He's promised us this land. The next city is a lot easier than Jericho. We don't need to send the whole army. Send two or 3,000 men. Joshua's like, great. 3,000 men go up there. But lo and behold, it doesn't turn out the way we're expecting. They're routed. Now, it is interesting that they're routed, but only 36 of them die, which has got to be the lowest total of a losing battle in Bible history. I mean... Yes, 36 people are important, but that's not exactly what you're expecting. 36 people are killed. Israel is routed. 
the worst thing is not the people who die, it's the fact that they're now petrified. And Joshua is absolutely, utterly confused. Didn't you promise us this land? Didn't you promise to go with us? Lord, we're only on city number two and you failed. You've abandoned us. And Joshua's like, what are we supposed to do now? We can't go forward. We can't even conquer this little tiny outpost. We can't go back. The Jordan River's still waiting for us. How in the world are we going to do this? He's absolutely stuck. You ever been there? You feel like you can't go forward? You feel like you can't go back? And the person you want to blame, same person Joshua wants to blame, God, what have you done? Why did you lead us here? Look, if your goal, God, was to torture us, you could have tortured us on the other side of the river. Why lead us in here so that we have to face our worst fear? Defeat at the hands of an overwhelmingly powerful enemy. Well, God replies in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. Sometimes when things don't go the way we want them to go, it's God's fault. But not in this case. That's what Joshua initially thinks. God says, no, 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 no. There is a problem here. You have been disobedient. We're told at the beginning, a man named Achan took some of the devoted things. Verse 20 tells us exactly what he's taken. He only tells us this after he's caught, not before. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with silver underneath. Now the problem here is those things that he took are labeled devoted things. That's the issue. He has taken devoted things. Again, in a normal battle, taking plunder from a conquered enemy would not be a problem. But in this case, who actually fought the battle of Jericho? God. We sing the song that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, but he didn't. God fought the battle of Jericho. These are God's spoils. He's the one who did the work. And remember, we said last week, Jericho was, complete, was supposed to be completely destroyed because it represented such vile, detestable, idolatrous behavior of the people in the land. And God said, we're going to deal with Jericho differently than the rest of the cities. You're going to be able to keep some stuff from the other cities, but Jericho, that's mine. Jericho is mine. Nothing comes from Jericho are you supposed to keep. It is devoted to the Lord. Now, there's two types of things that Achan has in his tent. 
and they represent the kinds of devoted things that God is talking about. The first is he's got a robe. This is a robe from Babylonia. This should have been destroyed. You're supposed to burn the city to the ground. You're supposed to kill anything that can be killed or burn anything that can be burned. This robe should have been burned because what it represents is the kinds of sinful practices associated with Babel or with Babylon, also associated with Jericho, and this robe was supposed to be devoted to the Lord because it was worthy of destruction because of the practices it represented. The second thing that Achan has in his tent is something that can't be burned. It's not something that's sort of inherently evil like that robe and what it represented. It's gold and silver. And God said in Jericho, you're not going to be able to burn the gold and the silver, so take it and put it into my treasury. It belongs to me. And so Achan has taken something that should have been destroyed because it was dedicated for destruction and something that had been promised to God. Those are the two kinds of devoted things that we hear about in the Bible. So again, the point is we're not just simply interested in a history lesson. We want to know what this has to do with us today. Well, when the Bible talks about devoted things, there are two kinds of things that are considered devoted to God. The first we hear about in Leviticus chapter 27, verse 28. But nothing that a person owns. So we're talking about stuff that you and I own and devotes to the Lord, whether a human being or an animal or family land may be sold or redeemed. Everything so devoted is most holy to the Lord. One type of devoted things are those things that are inherently good that we offer to God of our own free will. A human being, an animal, land, God's saying, look, you own those things, they're yours, but If you decide to offer them to me, they become devoted, like the gold and silver in Achan's tent. That has been promised to the Lord. It's now a devoted thing. Examples that you and I might be more familiar with, it's possible when you dedicate your children that you have devoted them to the Lord, that they now belong to God. The Bible tells us that our physical bodies are devoted to the Lord because God purchased your physical body with Jesus' physical body. Therefore, we don't belong to ourselves. We've been bought with a price. That means the activities that our bodies engage with, our bodies are devoted to the Lord. It's possible that, well, it is true. When you filled out your Grace Beyond pledge, that money may still be in your bank account but it now belongs to God. It's been devoted to Him. You made that choice of your own free will between you and God. It belongs to Him. If there's other money that you've promised to the Lord, you may still be holding on to it, but it's a devoted thing. The idea is, is you and I all have, we all have within us things that are inherently good, like children or our own bodies or money, that we've promised to the Lord. Once we promise it to the Lord, it's now a devoted thing. It can't be spent on something else. It can't be used for something else. If it is, we're doing what Achan did, which is to take back from God something that is devoted to him. The second kind of devoted thing is like the robe that Achan takes. It's what Deuteronomy 7.26 tells us about. 
do not bring a detestable thing into your house. So before we're talking about family and land, animals, those aren't detestable. Here we're talking about detestable things. Or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction. Regard it as vile and utterly detest it, for it is devoted or set apart for destruction. The second class of things that are devoted to God are those things that are inherently wicked, those things that are utterly detestable. Modern-day examples include pornography. That's a detestable thing. It's not neutral. It's not positive. It's inherently evil and wicked. Satanic things, tarot cards, Ouija boards, those types of things. Drugs, alcohol that's being abused. These are the kinds of things that are in themselves devoted to the Lord for destruction because of the destruction they bring into families' lives. And so God's point is there's another kind of thing that is devoted, like that Babylonian robe, which are the things that should have been destroyed. If you and I hold on to things, movies that we shouldn't have, pornography that we shouldn't be viewing, those kinds of things that we shouldn't be engaged with, if those things are found in our possession, we're doing what Achan did. We are taking things that are devoted for destruction and we're hiding them in our tent. And that's a problem. What is the problem that it causes? Well, look in verses 12 and 13. That's why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Verse 13, you cannot stand against your enemies until you remove the devoted things. The problem with you and I possessing something that's devoted, either because we've promised it to God or it deserved to be destroyed in the first place, is it makes us liable for destruction. This is not exactly the discipline of God the way you and I might think of it. What it really is, is God removing his hand of blessing. It's God removing his protective presence from us. I mean, look at the children of Israel. They go up to Ai. What were their losses again? 36 people. Listen, I'm no military general, but if you lose 36 people... Try again. Like you've got thousands and thousands of people. The army is made up of what? Another 2,964 people who went? Plus the thousands and thousands more back at camp? Why not fight again? Well, the problem is not that they lost 36 people. It's the problem is, is that they're absolutely petrified. Where did that come from? Well, there's only one person who uses fear like this. And that's Satan. And what happens is, is God, who was with them at Jericho, didn't go with them to Ai. And Satan now has free reign to strike them with his best tool, which is fear. And so the problem is not that all of a sudden a plague came on them or they were bitten by snakes or the ground opened up and swallowed them out. That would have been the direct discipline of God. The problem when you and I hold on to devoted things... God's promised protection is removed from our life and we're now fair game 
for Satan to come after us. That in these areas, Satan can now attack us with anxiety, fear, doubt, discouragement, depression. And God has simply said, hey, look, if you're going to kick me out of your life by stealing my stuff, if you're going to kick me out of your life by holding on to stuff that I said should be destroyed, okay, well, you got what you wished for. You may go on your journey of faith without me going with you. Problem is you don't know when Satan's going to come after you, but the point is, is God's protective presence is not with you. What does this look like? Let me give you a personal example. A few years ago, I was struggling with fear, anxiety, doubt, these sorts of uh, spiritual warfare kinds of things, and it was around things associated with my kids. Like, for example, I would go and see movies about kids that had grown up. And all of a sudden, I would feel myself sort of feeling anxious about my own kids growing up. I would feel sort of darkness. I would feel kind of attacked. And difficulty is thought about my own kids growing up. See, the thing is, I love my kids. I want to keep them exactly the age they are right now. And any time I would begin to think about, you know, that sort of memories in the future and, hey, will they even remember this stuff that we're doing together? And what will they think of me when they're grown up and they've moved out of the house or whatever? Anytime those thoughts came to mind, what came with them was fear and anxiety and discouragement and doubt. And I felt attacked at those times. It wasn't really explainable. Other people watching the same movies, having a great time. And I'm thinking, my kids are going to grow up. Well, as only God can do, he worked out circumstances whereby he made it clear to me that I was struggling with idolatry. What? Idolatry? Lord, what are you talking about? God said, you think you're a better father than I am. No, I don't. He's like, yes, you do. He said, remember, you dedicated those children to me, which I did, meaning I promised them to God. He said, the problem is you don't want to let them grow up and fulfill your promise. See, while they're this age, (laughs) that's true, (laughs) is right? You know, while they're this age, you can hold on to them and they're cute and you can kind of control what's going on and all of those kinds of things. The problem is, is if they stay this age, that's good for you, but bad for me. Because I need them to grow up into the men and women of God that you've devoted them to me to do. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to take them through some difficult times. And you don't want to let them go through those times. You think you know better how to raise those kids than I do. And the problem was is that is idolatry and that's a devoted thing. They belong to him. I'm entrusted with raising them, but they're his. And when I tried to take them back, all of a sudden the fear, the anxiety, and the doubt showed up. That's Joshua chapter 7. And when I realized it and said, you know what, Lord, you're right. I gave them to you. My job is to simply get them ready to be the best servants of the Lord they can be. Not to try to keep them this age, not to hold on to them, not to maximize my enjoyment of being with them, but to give them, get them ready for what the Lord wants them to do. You know what? The fear and the anxiety and the doubt went away. Because God's presence came back in. And the protection was there. Basically, I was saying to God, look, I'll raise my kids the way I want to raise them. And he says, okay, go ahead. And then you get on the journey and you realize, well, I'm fair game for Satan. He can come after me any way he wants. I don't want this anymore. Lord, I'm sorry. And then God's presence is there. Another personal experience. 
is a year or two after that, I was having this again. And I'm like, Lord, I'm not, I'm not trying to take my kids back. He's like, not kids anymore. <laughs> and I couldn't understand. Where's the fear? Where's the doubt coming from? And it was actually manifesting itself in, in panic attacks. And so the elders were very concerned and they were praying over me, which I so incredibly appreciated. Well, one of the elders says to me, look, I've just pr- been praying day and night for you. And I think God's telling me that it's physical. And I was like, physical? No, that's not it. Like, I'm in good health. It has nothing to do with anything physical. So I just ignored what he said, and I went on trying to solve it my own way, praying desperately, Lord, why are you letting me go through this? Lord, have mercy. Lord, aren't you supposed to rescue people? Lord, don't you say in the Bible that the righteous will never be shaken? Why am I being shaken? You're not keeping your promise. And then God, in the only way that God can, said, no, it is something physical. He's like, did you forget that you promised to reach a certain weight for me? which I had. I didn't have to make that promise. None of you have to make a promise like that. But I felt in my own life from a physical point of view, this body belongs to God. He purchased it with Jesus's blood. And there were things about my eating habits and my exercise habits that I knew weren't that pleasing to him. So as a spiritual discipline, I said, Lord, to show you how much I love you, I'm going to hit this weight. And you know what? I started off great, but I never got to that weight. And along the way, I got tired of trying to hit that weight. And so I just got on with eating whatever I felt like eating. And for a long period of time, those sort of gluttonous eating habits and not exercising had seeped back into my life. And God said, but you made me a promise. You didn't have to, but you did. And now that you have, you got to fulfill it. That's a devoted thing. My body belongs to him. And when you refuse and try to take back from God something that you have given to him or rightly belongs to him, the result is, is not necessarily the immediate discipline of God. But somehow God's presence is removed. And in those areas, you begin to experience the fear, the anxiety, the doubt, those kinds of things. See, Joshua 7 is a very sobering message. We think we can get away with just having that pornography in our life. Nobody's going to know about it. We think we can get away with holding on to our kids or whatever it is. God's not mocked. He knows what he's doing. And if you steal stuff from him that belongs to him that should either be destroyed or that you've promised him, he just simply says, okay, you can have what you want. I'm going to leave. You get those things instead. But along with those things comes Satan's right to sift you like wheat. To come after you with fear, anxiety, doubt, discouragement. You want to know something even more sobering? Look in verse 11. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant. They have taken devoted things. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand. Wait a second. Who is the one that took the stuff? One guy who's suffering, the whole nation. In fact, this is just conjecture, I don't think that Achan actually went to the battle of Ai. I don't think he was even part of that battle. But you know the really sobering thing about this? All of Israel is suffering because Achan stole something that belonged to God. Now, what's implicit in Joshua 7 is explicit in Joshua 22. When Achan, son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, 
Did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. Here's the really sobering thing, and if we're honest, we know that it's true. Your sins affect me, and my sins affect you. We know this is true because you can have a family where one, one of the adults in the family is engaged in pornography and the spouse doesn't know it and the kids don't know it, but somehow something feels not quite right. God's presence seems to be removed and the marriage suffers and the parenting suffers and everybody suffers. Even though it seems to be secret, it's hidden under the tent, but it's there and the sin of one person is affecting everybody. We know that to be true if a pastor in a church is secretly embezzling money and nobody in the church knows it's happening. Still, when you come to participate in the church, you think something's the matter here. Something's not quite right. Where is God's presence? We seem to be under an inordinate number of attacks. What's happening here? We know this if somebody in the church goes to dabble in the satanic occult. None of us may know they're doing it. None of us would ever approve of it. But they walk through the doors having been on Saturday night uh, in the satanic place and then they come here. They bring with them those devoted things, devoted to destruction. It causes problems for all of us. My sins affect you. Your sins affect me. That's a very sobering thought. Now, if you're like me, you say the same thing, which is, but that doesn't seem fair. And you know what? It's not. Our individualistic Western minds are probably not attuned to be able to understand this, but I don't think it's designed to be fair. But just because it's not fair to us doesn't mean it's not true. All of Israel suffers because of Achan's sin. But you know what? That's actually a piece of good news. How? How is that good news? Well, you remember in Joshua 22 when it says that Achan was not the only one who died for his sin? That's a little hint. The fact that I'm connected to you and you're connected to me so that my sin affects you and your sin affects me is bad news. But it's good news because it makes something available to us that would not be available otherwise that Romans 5 makes clear. Romans 5 says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, this is talking about our forefather Adam, who chose to take a devoted thing, remember a piece of fruit that God said you're not allowed to touch that, that is not for you, that's mine, don't take that. Adam and Eve took a devoted thing and their sin affected every single human being, that's the bad news. So also one righteous act, this is Jesus' death on a cross, resulted in justification and life for all people. Again, something that's not fair. It's not fair that I should suffer for Adam's sin. It's also not fair that I should be blessed because of Jesus' obedience. The one makes possible the other. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The really bad news that Achan's sin throws all of Israel into despair is actually good news because it means that one act of obedience can rescue the whole group. That Jesus' obedience can bring us life. Which is why when you go back to Joshua 7, after Joshua falls on his face and says, Lord, what in the world did you do to us? And God says, no, 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 no. No, no, I didn't do this. You did this. God doesn't keep it a mystery. He says, here's what you need to do. 
Somebody among you has something that's devoted to me. God tells Joshua how to find it out and then tells Joshua what to do with it. Joshua obeys completely and they can sin no longer is a problem for Israel and actually turns out to be a blessing, which we're going to see in Joshua chapter 8 when you come back next week and we talk about that. <clears throat> but this morning the point is Joshua's one act of obedience overcomes Achan's one act of disobedience. See, the point is Joshua can help rescue Israel because Achan is able to throw Israel into this problem situation. However this is, whether it's fair or not fair, it's the way it works. I'm connected to you, you're connected to me. What we do affect each other, but that's good because it allows Jesus to come and bless us and it allows our acts of obedience, my obedience to bless you and your obedience to bless me. So what's the takeaway for this morning? If something is happening in your life, especially having associated with it fear, anxiety, doubt, discouragement, if you feel a level of attack associated with something, I'm asking you to take a hard look and examine your life. Is there a devoted thing that you're holding on to? Now listen. You may have convinced yourself and everybody else that God is to blame. You may have convinced all of us that God abandoned you, that God isn't doing the right thing, that God is just making you suffer for no reason. And I get, I've said at the beginning, sometimes our lives don't go very well because of the things God is asking us to do. But if it's because you're holding on to a devoted thing, it doesn't matter how many other people you convince that it's God's fault. God is always righteous. If you're holding on to something that should either be destroyed or that should be given to him, it will not go well for you. God will not go with you. And you can't talk him into going. You, all of us here, we may get together and pray for you. God's still not going to go with you. Listen to me very carefully. If you are holding on to a devoted thing, there is nothing I can do, nothing you can do. You can't memorize enough scripture. You can't pray enough. You can't give enough. You can't serve enough. There is nothing that you can do to bring God's presence back into your life except get rid of the devoted thing. That's it. And listen, I'm not telling this to you to yell at you or to be angry. I've been there. I know what it's like when you're liable for destruction, that fear, that anxiety, that doubt. Listen, you can pretend it's not there. You can try to avoid it. You can do everything under the sun not to deal with. It will stay there as long as that devoted thing remains in your possession. You keep holding on to that pornography. You keep refusing to give God the money that you promised him. You keep committing sexual immorality with the body that he gave you that belongs to him. You refuse to give him your children that you dedicated to him. Whatever it may be. Listen, as your friend, I'm telling you, there's only one way to get God's protective presence back in your life. It's to give him the things that belong to him. And no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you can try medical solutions, you can try spiritual solutions, you can try physical solutions, you can try every solution under the sun. But if your problem is that God has removed his protective presence from you, if you're journeying through faith without him standing right next to you, you are fair game for the enemy. And listen, our enemy does not have mercy. 
He doesn't care how much you're suffering. Your suffering makes him want to give you more suffering. There is only one thing that will hold him at bay. And it's not our moral righteousness. It's not our goodness. It's not our willpower. It's not our friends around us. It is the presence of God in our lives. Listen, I understand sometimes things in our life don't go the way we want them to go because God is asking us to suffer. I'm not talking about that right now. Sometimes we are experiencing what's going on in Joshua chapter 7 because we have devoted things in our life. And what I'm asking you to do today, this week, is examine your life. Is there anything that is devoted to the Lord? Stuff that should be destroyed. Stuff that if people in this church knew was in your house, you would be embarrassed that you don't want that, that shouldn't be there. Get rid of it. Are there things that you have given to God that you're trying to take back from him? It won't work. It won't work. Give them to him. Trust him with them. Secondly, what if you're worried that your spouse is holding on to devoted things? Or someone in your small group? Or someone in the church? Or someone in the neighborhood? Or one of your children? And you feel that level of fear and that anxiety and that doubt. You're going through what Joshua's going through where he searched and he said... I did everything right. I did what you asked me to do. And the answer is someone connected to you is holding on to devoted things. What are you and I supposed to do in that situation? Whatever God tells you to do. If he tells you to confront the person, confront the person. If he tells you to not confront the person, please don't confront the person. If he tells you to wake up early in the morning and pray every day for them, wake up in the morning and pray for them. If he tells you to avoid the person, avoid the person. If he tells you to embrace the person, embrace the person. Because whatever he gives you to do is an opportunity for you to exercise obedience, and your obedience will overcome their disobedience. Here's the good news about Jesus Christ. Obedience trumps disobedience. And the reason why God is going to give you specific specific instructions about what to do is so that you have a chance to obey because once you obey you have introduced a greater power into the situation the one thing that satan can never abide by is somebody who is submitted to the lord submit yourselves to god resist the devil and he will flee from you when you say to god god i'm ready to obey give me my marching orders you are now a devoted thing to the lord and your devotion to the lord will overcome the destruction associated with whatever anybody else in your life is doing. And so the sobering message is is other people's choices do affect ours. The really encouraging message, it doesn't matter if you're willing to obey. If you're willing to do whatever God tells you to do, there is nothing that can harm you because God says, I will be with you. And in your obedience, you'll be safe. Sometimes when life doesn't go the way we want it to go, it's God's fault. Sometimes it's ours.